So, uh, with those announcements out of the way, let us uh, move into our teaching for this morning. So, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2 today. So, if you want to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be reading several verses here as we continue in our series called On Earth as It Is in Heaven. Colossians chapter 2, I'll be starting in verse 3 once you get there. If you don't have the, uh, the words up on the, I mean, if you don't have your Bible with you, then you can read along with me. We'll have the text on the screens next to me. So once again, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2 and starting in verse 3 once you guys get there. Okay, well, it looks like we're all ready. So we're going to jump in this morning in Colossians chapter 2, and starting verse 3, it says, In him, speaking of Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk with him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy, an empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled in him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death, debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He has triumphed over them in him. So in this series, we've been trying to ask the question, how can we pray the Lord's prayer and say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven How can we pray that prayer and mean those lines and and then actually live out our life uh, and engage in the culture and the society and the world around us in such a way that we do endeavor to see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? God's kingdom being established and and lived out and and being uh, displayed before the world actually on this earth in a way that we can see it. Not giving into a faith that is defeatist and says, oh, well, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and you know, we've just got to do the best we can to persevere and hold on until the end whenever Jesus comes and, and saves us. But to instead take seriously what Jesus said to us, where he said that we are to pray for God's kingdom to actually come on this earth, and that we are to uh, go forth and advance the church with the understanding that, uh, as Jesus said, that the church will advance and the gates of hell will not stand against it. How are we to take that seriously and live that out in our world today? How can we, in the world today, where we see darkness 
in our culture, in our society and nation, uh, shine the light of the gospel upon it, calling people to live their lives uh, under the lordship of Christ in submission to his will and especially in entering into his kingdom as a citizen of his kingdom. How can we live our life in this way? And so we have been for the past two weeks or so working on establishing and building an understanding of justice because so much of what we are to engage with in our world today and in some of the darkest areas of our culture and some of the most divided areas of conversation, the central issue is this idea of justice, what it, what it means and what, uh, what we mean when we're talking about it and what the world means whenever they are talking about it. Because, you know, have you ever heard that phrase before? I think, I think it was first in The Princess Bride, uh, that phrase where you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. My, my project for this past couple of weeks has been trying to you take that same approach to the word justice. We keep throwing that word around, and especially our world keeps throwing it around, but I don't think it means what our world says it means, and I think maybe even how Christians might have started to absorb some of the world's meaning into our worldview and our understanding of justice. And so my project, what I've been attempting to do for the past few weeks and for the rest of the series, is really summed up in what Paul says in verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read them again to you. My whole project and what I hope for us is summed up in this. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the fullness of God's nature in Christ and how he rules over all authorities. Let us endeavor and and work to make sure that we are not being subtly drawn in to be made captive through through empty philosophies, deceited by things which sound like good arguments, but which are based upon human tradition and not upon the truth, the fact of God's revelation in Jesus Christ and Christ's lordship over all the world. So today, in this third part of, the, of working on building a, a, a definition and understanding of justice, we're really trying to wrap together what I've been talking about as we prepare to transition in our series to start applying what we have been talking about to specific areas of our world. So I know that the past couple weeks have been very, you can say, theory-heavy and light on application. We're about to make a really hard transition in this series to be much more application-focused and less based on theory. So today, we're kind of summing up and drawing together what we've been learning about these past few weeks by drawing together a clear contrast between the Christian worldview's understanding of justice and uh, the, a, a humanistic worldview, or that worldview which denies God. A humanistic worldview's understanding of justice, which is the understanding that pretty much all of our society is using today. And so we're going to look at three things. Well, it's really three pairs, three couplets. We're looking at God and man, and then we'll be looking at sin and judgment, and then finally, redemption and transformation. So in each one of these, we're going to contrast what these two worldviews say about these areas, starting with God and man, sin and judgment, and then redemption and transformation. So let's begin with God and man. Whenever you start to... uh, Whenever you endeavor to go on a journey, and our, to, to take that and put it in terms of uh, like an analogy for what we're trying to do here, whenever we try to navigate our way 
through the, the cultural currents that we find ourselves in right now and, and, and the landscape of, uh, of societal issues and problems and uh, opportunities for engagement and, or, or resistance and so on, wherever you begin to navigate your way throughout any kind of journey and you, you look at a map to make sense of it, you have to identify where you are on that map. Does anybody remember you know, going to the mall back in the day whenever, whenever we used to go to the mall and you would go to that map to try to make sense of the craziness of what you're about to go through and it would always tell you, you are here. Because wherever you start any journey, uh, wherever you start any kind of navigation endeavor, you've got to know where to start from. Because where you start from will determine whether or not you end up in the right place, right? And so even when it comes to worldviews, and whenever it comes to um, uh, issues of theory and philosophy, whenever it comes to talking about the ideas that drive a nation or a culture, it is incredibly important that we figure out where do we start from? Where do we begin from? In other words that you are here, pointer. And so let's start by looking at these, these two worldviews which are in clash in our culture right now, which is, as I've said before, the Christian worldview based upon the Bible and the humanistic worldview, kind of a catch-all term for any of those worldviews which uh, deny the uh, Trinitarian transcendent God of Scripture, saying that there is no God, right, or that there's a God which we cannot know and has no authority over man. These are the two worldviews. Let's, be, let's look at where each one of them start because where they start will play a great influence on what direction we go in and make sure that we arrive at our intended des- destination, which is justice right, and transformation and wholeness and healing in society. So what do these two worldviews say about God and man? This is where every worldview starts. Here's my first main point. It is that only the Christian worldview can provide us with a solid foundation for justice and human rights. Only the Christian worldview can provide us with a solid foundation for justice and human rights. Let me contrast these two different worldviews and show you where they end up. So first of all, the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview, as I said, the worldview which comes out of uh, the Bible, which is determined and influenced by uh, God's revealed word to us, begins with the transcendent, personal, relational, knowable God. What does the Bible begin with? In the beginning, God, right? Scripture itself, the the pages of Scripture literally begin with God, and so the Christian worldview begins with God. And so whenever we approach the issues that we face in our culture, we must also approach it from this first reality, this, this, uh, this, this lodestar, which is the existence of the personal, relational, and as I said before, knowable God. You see, it is not just that we say that God is there. It is that he is there and he has spoken to us. So we can know his nature. We can know his attributes. Because he is there and he has spoken to us, then we can differentiate him from ourselves, not just saying that we are all a part of some divine or that we are all a part of some um, naturalistic material existence. Rather, that there is a distinction, that there is the creation, which we are a part of, and the creator, right? And that this creator, who is uh, transcendent, uh, who is, there is a distinction between him and his creation, has revealed himself and shown himself to us to be a personal God. He has personality. He has attributes, attributes which are, um, which are not just uh, like characteristics, as we talk about, but are moral attributes, He has a righteous character, and so as a part of his personality, he is righteous and he is just. 
We've talked about so far in this series how justice is something which is not just incidental to God's character, but it is an essential part of the character of God. It is an essential one of uh, his attributes. It is an outworking and, and, and application of his righteous character to the world. Justice is not something that is above God that he himself must submit to. And justice is not something which is beneath the Lord, something that he just um, uh, only applies and is concerned about when it is necessary. It is uh, an essential part of his nature in who he is. And this God is relational. Because as we established, him being the Trinitarian Lord, three, uh, three persons in one God, we have a firm foundation for saying that, uh, that he is actually relational. That whenever it says that God is love, that can actually mean something. Because even before creation, that love was being expressed, was proven to be true between the, fa- the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's attribute of righteousness and justice is proven to be true. Even before the foundation of the world and the, the creation of the cosmos, there was righteousness and justice giving to each their due between God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a firm foundation upon which we can establish a theory of justice and an application of justice for our society. And more than just this, what the biblical worldview tells us about God, it also tells us about ourselves. It says that we are the special creation of this amazing Lord, right? We are the special creation. We are, we are the pinnacle of his creation, right? The, um, the climactic moment of the creation narrative in scripture is the creating of mankind, And what makes the creation of mankind so special and and so different from anything else that the Lord God formed in the world is that he said, let us make man in our image. And though he gives life to all things, it says that he breathed the breath of life into man. We, every individual human being, every person on the face of this earth is a Creature is a person made in the image of God. And here's what that means. It means a lot. Let me give you a very short point. Here's what it means. It means, number one, that every single individual human life has an eternal inherent value. A value which is not connected to any uh, giftings or beauty or skills that that person has. You see, every other culture and society, until the Christian worldview gained dominance in the West, every other culture and society saw a person's worth as wrapped up in what they could prove for themselves. In other words, how intelligent they were, how beautiful they were, how athletic they were, or how skilled they were. And so therefore, if you're somebody like me, who's not necessarily at the top of any of those categories, right? if you're somebody like me, then your life did not have as much value and worth as those others did. But whenever the Bible comes into the picture and says, Mankind is made in his image. It says, no, every single one of us are equal in our inherent and infinite value and worth because we are made with God's stamp on us. We are made in his image. But it also means that we have attributes like God. Not all of them, right? None of us in here are omniscient. (laughs) But we have some. And what are some of those? Number one, that we are made for community. We were made to be uh, in, instinctively, essentially relational beings. Men, men and women were not made to live in isolation. 
They were made for community. And it is an injustice whenever anyone says that someone ought to live in isolation because we were made in the image of God for community, for relationships. It also explains for us why as human beings we have, once again, something which you could almost call an instinctual drive and desire for justice. Justice is something which seems to be uh, inherent to, uh, to all of our nature, something which we expect of the world and we expect of others. As C.S. Lewis argued in Mere Christianity, he said, even the man who denies that there's such a thing of, as justice or morality, whenever you go and try to steal his wallet, he's going to cry injustice. <laughs> right? It's something which is intrinsic to us all. Why? Scripture tells us because we are made in the image of the relational and just God. But the humanistic worldview, in contrast, those worldviews, which you might call atheistic, agnostic, deistic, or, or whatever else, are just spiritual, but, but not uh, based upon the Christian God. These humanistic worldviews all begin with man. They all begin with man and whatever man's ideas are about God. Whatever, whatever man assumes in his certain time and place is, becomes the doctrine to be believed about God. If there even is such a doctrine of God in a humanistic worldview's view, very often there is no God. And so, therefore, it is only man's ideas which count for anything. And whatever man thinks and man decides is autonomous because there is no God existing over man and, and, and man-made structures and, and the rulers of men. There is no God over them holding them accountable to his standards of righteousness and justice. And so humanistic worldviews always begin with man. And they have no creator-creature distinction. Either on the one hand, uh, we are all a part of one single divine, uh, or on the other hand, we are all a part equally of this uh, you know, non-divine, naturalistic, materialistic, uh, purposeless existence. And we all meaninglessly make our way through this world. There's no creature creator distinction, and there is no explanation for the relational nature of man. Any worldview out of the Christian worldview cannot provide for us an answer for why we desire community and why we have such an inherent, or as I could say before, instinctual desire to see justice in the world. And so, here's what happens in this worldview. Because there is no standard of righteousness or justice above mankind, then justice becomes whatever men decide in the moment. Inevitably, what will happen is justice is going to become whatever the collective thinks in the moment. So you will have a rule by the mob, because the mob will hold more power than the minority. And inevitably, the collective will give their authority over to... um, Well, either it will end in anarchy as you continue to have rule by the mob, or it will end in tyranny as the collective hands over more and more power to a limitless state that promises to enact all of their views of justice upon them. And then what you will have in this circumstance is a state which which establishes and defines for all society and for every individual in society what justice is. What is justice? Well, it is whatever the senators and the representatives and the presidents and the chief justices say it is, not based upon any transcendent standard, but based upon uh, their imagination, based upon whatever seems reasonable and right to man in that given moment. And if you know anything about history, whatever man thinks is reasonable and right in any given moment changes from decade to decade, from century to century. And so the end result of humanism 
It is inevitable. It will not bring about a society which is truly just and which is based upon an objective standard of justice, truth, and morality, but one which is instead based upon the tyrannical ideas of either the collective or of an uh, elite, an elite in the culture or an elite in the government. And because they cannot provide a foundation for the inherent value of mankind, like Christianity can, saying that all men are made equal, all men being made in the image of God, then in this worldview, people are no more valuable than what they can do for the collective. And so you can see this in many different areas of our culture, right? People, a person's inherent value uh, cannot be established upon anything else than what they can accomplish for either the more powerful or for the collective. So, what this means, it means that humanism cannot provide a foundation for justice and rule of law in our society. Let me apply this for you. Like I said, we've been talking a lot of theory. I want to I apply it. What does this mean? It means that both left and right, you know, both progressive and conservative forms of humanism will fail to provide for us either a foundation for justice or society where there is rule of law. Here's what I mean by that. So on the one hand, you have left-leaning forms of, uh, of humanistic thought. You can see the left-leaning forms of, uh, and ideas of justice in what I called last week ideological social justice, this, uh, this thing which is something beyond just a concern for the dispossessed or a concern for the oppressed or a concern for the poor, but something which is a, a full worldview. In the left-leaning form and in ideological social justice, what they say is that justice means equality of outcome. What they propose is that since we are all just, uh, you know, in, in essence, one single part of this one continuum where there is no cre- uh, creator over the creation, then any time that we see inequalities in this world where we are all essentially by the random processes and chances of nature, you know, the same, any time we see inequalities, well, then that is bad. And that is the result of oppression. And so what we must do in our world is create a society where there is perfect equality of outcome. There are no disparities. There are no um, distinctions between any people or group of people at all. It's a utopian vision. A utopian vision, meaning a, a vision of the future that is perfect, free from any sin, free from any harm, free from any hurt, and one that we, through our efforts and ideas, can create. Now, you can see just through the examples of history how every culture which adopts and then tries to enact a utopian vision inevitably becomes dystopian. And inevitably, once the oppressed then go into power, then become the oppressors and the abusers themselves, uh, often furthering the same injustices that were there before, if not just creating new injustices. Left-leaning justice cannot give us a, 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 or left-leaning humanism, ideological social justice, cannot give us a solid foundation. But neither can right-leaning, because it would really, it would be very easy for us to see, you know, 
ideological social justice and left-leaning forms of, of justice, which, are, which is the predominant view in our culture right now, it'll be really easy for us to then just reactively um, jump over to the other side, right, to right-leaning forms of, uh, uh, of justice today, to just join on with the bandwagon of mainstream conservatism. But what we need to understand is that most of the ideas of what justice is and what rule of law ought to be in our society today even on the side of the right or the conservative, even these are not based upon Scripture. Even these, in very many ways, depart from what we see as revealed in Scripture to be the will of God and to be what is righteousness and what is justice. Because even in secular conservatism, even in secular conservatism, which says that justice is law and order, what they mean by that is that justice is just whatever laws are on the books at the time, right? Justice is just, uh, is just giving to every person or to every group what is, what is their due based upon what our laws say at the time. And so whatever we believe about uh, who should be going to jail and for, uh, and for how long they should be going to jail, for what kind of things are an offense in jail, and which inevitably in right-leaning secular conservatism Every single problem in our society is solved by, we'll just send them to jail. There, this is not based upon uh, Scripture. And so, if we reactively jump away from ideological social justice into just a, a, a secular conservatism, or the right-leaning forms of justice, which says, just throw the books at them, Right? then even still, we will have no basis for evaluating what men say justice is because we'll just be assuming, well, whatever the laws say, that's what you give them. But if we see justice and if we try to establish a rule of law which is not based upon the ideas of men, but instead which is based upon the sovereign Lord, well, then we will have a standard to appeal to a standard to appeal to, to say, this is why these laws, which are on the books, which, yes, maybe even the Constitution says it's okay, but according to the, the rule of the true law, which is God's word, according to the rule of law, which is the character of our Lord, this is unjust. You know, we had a, we had a decent discussion about this in our, in our community group this past week, talking about this, pointing out, If we continue to work on this way, then it seems as though there are a lot of people in our society who have been abused by an unjust system because social conservatives and even just Christians have just gone along with saying, well, whatever the laws in the books are, is, is that's justice, and so that's what people deserve. And so we have far, far too many communities broken, families split apart, men and women put in prison for things which, according to Scripture, should not be criminal. Things which, yes, might be harmful. Things which, yes, might not be good for those individuals and might not be good for those families. But then when we just say, law and order, and when we just throw the books at them, and we do not take into consideration what Scripture says is punishable offenses by the state, when we base our views of justice just upon whatever the state says rather than upon what the Lord says is moral, good and true. We have men, fathers, husbands, separated from their families for decades at a time for offenses which should not deserve that. 
Friends, we need both to face secular conservatism and to face ideological social justice. We need the standard of God's righteousness and his law as revealed to us so that we can approach the various injustices in our culture today and say to them, these are wrong because there is a standard above them which they do not line up with. Christianity, and only Christianity, provides for us a sovereign God and his revealed word which stands over all of man's visions, which stands over all human imagination, and which stands over all man-made laws and demands their alignment with what he says. This is what Paul says in verse 10. He says, For the fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled with him, with him who is head over every ruler and authority. Therefore, his law is the rule of law, which we ought to seek and to enact and live our lives beneath. I went a little bit longer in that section than I intended to. Let's move on. I'll shorten these next sections. So we look at the most fundamental questions of what a worldview can provide us, and I, and I tried to draw out for you the distinctions and, and to show you how these, depending on where we start from, it will determine a very different destination, right? Talking about God and man. Well, what do these different worldviews say about sin and judgment? In other words, what do these worldviews say about morality? What is righteousness and what is sin, what is good and what is bad, and, what, and how to approach those things with judgment? You can learn a lot about a community, or you can learn a lot about a, a family, or you can learn a lot about a school or a, or a sports team or a business or whatever it is. You can learn a lot about them based off of what they celebrate and based off of what they condemn, right? Based off of what they boost and, ba- and what they amplify and that which they silence, You can learn a whole lot about a culture or any group of people based off of these things because what those things reveal, what they celebrate and condemn or what they amplify and what they silence, reveals their theory and their understanding of what is sin and what is righteousness. What do these two worldviews that we've been talking about say about sin, righteousness, and judgment? My major point for this section is this. Only the Christian worldview can appropriately diagnose the problems of the world. Only the Christian worldview can appropriately diagnose the problems of the world. This time, let's start with the humanistic worldview and what it says uh, about what is sin. Like I said before, whenever we look at how humanism has worked its way throughout our culture, and and as I talked about in 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 the previous application, how we can see a humanistic worldview working its way into both left-leaning and right-leaning forms of what is justice today and how we view justice. But as I said, the predominant and the, and, and the view which it has by far more power today in our culture, in our government, in all of our social institutions is that more left-leaning side, which I called ideological social justice. The humanistic worldview, which especially the ideological social justice, says, speaking of sin, that society is divided by the oppressed and the oppressors. Society is divided by the oppressed and the oppressors. No matter where you look, these are the two groups of people that we see. All the world is divided between these two groups. And so, therefore, what you have is a definition of sin. Sin is oppression. And who are the sinners in the world? Who are the wicked? According to the humans of worldview and ideological social justice, it is the oppressors. They are the wicked. They are the sinners. And on the other hand, the righteous or the innocent are those who are oppressed. The oppressed are innocent. 
So there's a line drawn between the world, between oppressed and oppressor. On the one side, you have the sinners of the world. On the other side, you have the innocent. On the one side, you have the wicked. And on the other side, the righteous who are in need of deliverance, right? Who are in need of a relief from their oppression. And so these lines of oppressed and oppressors can be drawn along various different places in our culture. And as you can see in various utopian um, uh, utopian societies uh, along the course of human history, you can see that these lines are sometimes drawn in different places. Sometimes these lines are drawn along class. And so whenever you draw the line along class, then you say the rich are the oppressors and the poor are the oppressed. The rich are the sinners. They are, uh, they are the, the wicked and the poor are the innocent in need of uh, relief. The rich are in need of repentance, right? but not the poor. You can draw these lines along class, but you can also draw these lines along other places. You can draw these lines along, uh, along ethnicity and race so that you say that those who are ethnic minorities are the oppressed and, the, and whiteness is the oppressors. Whiteness is sin and uh, minorities are righteous, are innocent. You can draw these lines along uh, gender. And so you see the, the, uh, the, the movements of feminism saying that women are the oppressed, men are the oppressors, the patriarchy, right? The sin is the patriarchy, women are innocent. You can see this also, these lines being drawn along uh, sexual identity. And so in our culture today, whenever uh, those who identify as LGBTQ+, did I miss anything? LGBTQ+, are the oppressed being oppressed by the Christian sexual ethic. But in the, what is the predominant view of justice today, all of humanity is drawn and divided between these lines, wherever the lines are drawn, whether it is along class, whether it is along race, whether it is along uh, sexual identity or gender or wherever else, all of human, uh, humanity and all the world is, is drawn, divided between these lines which are arbitrarily drawn and then split between the sinful who are the oppressors and the innocent who are the oppressed. And so what this means then is that if this is true, if you have just the, the different groups of the dispossessed and their various oppressors who are, you know, whether it be whiteness, whether it be men, whether it be uh, the, the, uh, the educated or the, or the rich elites, whatever you have is you have only one group that needs to repent. Only one group which is called to recognize their sin and then repent from it. And another group of humanity which is not called to repent, which is assumed to be innocent. And then in this circumstance, the only way to repent and to, uh, and, and to not just receive the justice that you deserve is through differentiation, which is why you have such, such this incredibly odd and contradictory phenomenon in our culture today where you see people who are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly wealthy. Think of all of our uh, celebrities, all of our act, whether they be actors and actresses, whether they be uh, professional athletes or whoever else, who will decry wealth, right? Who will decry uh, having having uh, having riches, having wealth, and so on, while they themselves are zooming around all over the planet in their private jets, living in their mansions, taking all of their vacations to their third, sixth, seventh, eighth home, and whatever tropical location and destination, while they preach to you the wickedness of wealth. Why must they do that? 
because it is their form of repentance. It is their form of differentiation from the class of the oppressors so that they are not judged for their sin of whatever it is, being wealthy or being white or being a man or being someone who holds to a Christian sexual ethic and whatever else. Only one group is called to repentance. They try to repent by differentiation, uh, removing themselves from the, that class group that they were placed in, and then working to dismantle systems of oppression. How does the Christian worldview differ from this? The Christian worldview says that we are all sinners guilty before God. The Christian worldview says that humanity is not drawn and divided between the lines of oppressed and oppressors. And, and any other of those uh, possible categories I laid out to you before, that is not divided along these lines, but that there is one line, and that is uh, the righteous and the wicked, and that we are all on the one side. <laughs> that we are all sinners guilty before God. Paul calls it this in this passage that we read in verse 14. Paul says that we all have a certificate of debt before God. We are all lawbreakers. It does not matter if you are poor. It does not matter if you are a, a minority in terms of gender or a minority in terms of ethnicity, if you're a minority in terms of, uh, uh, of anything else. It does not matter if you have been oppressed because there are people who are oppressed, right? In our society, all over the world, it happens. I'm not denying it. But even for the oppressed, it calls them to repentance. The Christian worldview says that we are all sinners who have broken God's law, and we are all guilty before him. Therefore, we are all called to repentance before the Lord. The world is not ultimately divided by disposed groups, but by the wicked and the righteous. And every individual is guilty and must repent. You see, here's the big difference between a Christian view of uh, of the world and of sin, and one which is based off of uh, ideological social justice. To sum it up in one word, Christianity says that the primary problem with the world is rebellion. Rebellion against God. Left-leaning forms of justice and ideological social justice or, or, and, and critical theory and all of its different ideations says that the greatest problem of the world summed up in one word is oppression. We must refute that and counter that and provide an alternative saying, no, the world is not divided between these groups, but it is that we are all sinners before God. And the one problem, the core problem of the world is rebellion. And so anywhere that we see problems in the world, the issue is rebellion before God. And the solution is not primarily what we can do politically and in terms of systems, but transformation by the Holy Spirit. So even where we see oppression... And we, and we rightly identify it as oppression, right? There is some injustice happening here. We say the ultimate problem is not the oppression, but the rebellion against God, right? Rebelling against his authority, using power in a way that he does not describe how power ought to be used, and treating people as though they are not image bearers made with inherent value, deserving of uh, justice, deserving of fair treatment, because those oppressors rebelled against God in all these forms, they became oppressors. We cannot, um, I want to say this well, we cannot be satisfied with these simplistic labels for the world. 
in these simplistic solutions. Let me apply this for you just a little bit deeper. Humanism cannot accurately diagnose or solve the world's problems. First, what this means is that if we will live by the Christian worldview as opposed to uh, man's ideas of justice, we cannot ascribe guilt and innocence by group identity. According to Scripture, this is, uh, this is wicked. According to Scripture, this goes against the righteous character of God. Whenever we read about God's righteous character, and whenever we read in Scripture about how God views humanity, he views every individual as accountable for their actions. He views every individual as an independent moral agent who has either lived righteously or has lived breaking his laws, and then he judges them based upon their actions. God does not come to humanity and judge them based upon what group identity they have. These are two vastly different ways of seeing the world. So first of all, we cannot ascribe guilt and innocence to people by their group identity. This is not how God does it. God says in, his, in, in, in Leviticus that you are to render justice which is impartial. He says, showing neither partiality to the poor nor favoritism towards the rich. He says you are to give to each person justice and justice alone. Once again, we do not identify people just by their group identity. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God describes what the righteous man is like. He says, here's what a righteous man is like. And do you know what he describes? He doesn't say what class he is. He doesn't say that he's Jewish and not Gentile. He doesn't say uh, any of these other things. He says, he follows my law. Over and over, it's a whole paragraph of, of a man following just what God says. He says, this is a righteous man. He says, and this is a wicked man. And then he describes in very much a parallel, somebody who breaks all those laws. And then he says, now let's say that there is a son of a wicked man who sees the sins of his father, how they do not line up with the law of the Lord. And then he repents and he lives a life. And it's an exact parallel of the righteous man, two paragraphs before. And he lives his life in this way. And God says, so I will not judge the son based upon the sins of the father. So even when we look at some of the very complex and hard areas of our culture where there are disparities uh, still existing in our culture today and maybe even uh, some systems and things which need to be changed, because these are due to a history of injustice, even whenever we approach areas of our culture that need to be addressed because of a history of injustice, we do not judge people based upon their group identity, but we see each person as a unique individual made in the image of God who is a responsible moral agent. Second, going along with this, it means that we cannot simplistically label every problem as systemic. This is one of the greatest uh, problems and weaknesses of ideological social justice that, that any time there is a problem which is identified or a disparity or, or, a, or a discrimination or whatever else in our culture, the, the sin, the root issue at the heart of it is proposed to be a systemic sin, whether it is a systemic racism or a systemic discrimination or whatever else. And the problem with just simplistically labeling everything as systemic is that very often what that means is, is that there's not much that we can do about it, right? Maybe you've noticed before that every time the conversation goes to, well, it's a systemic issue, well, what is the issue? Like, where, where's the specific law that we can change? Where's the specific uh, 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 
um, you know, rule that we can change in this educational institution? What is the thing that we can do? What's a systemic issue? But what does that mean? What, what can we do about it? So often what that means is, is it's just a fill-in word for, for sin, right? Because whenever we talk about how do we address and how do we approach and how do we deal with sin in our world, there's, no, there's really no law that you can change. There's nothing on the books that you can do to just get rid of sin because sin is a cosmic issue and it, it exists in the human heart. Only the redemptive work of God can do away with sin. Well, in ideological social justice, so often what happens is the word systemic just becomes a placeholder for sin. And so then there's nothing we can do about it except to continue pound upon certain people that they are guilty and that they must differentiate. And they must then work to dismantle these systems that we cannot identify. This often removes the ability to do anything. And most importantly, what it does, which is contrary to the word of God, is it removes agency from those who need the help. And I think that this is one of the greatest... um, one of the greatest things that is wrong and one of the most tragic pieces of ideological social justice that it treats all those who are in those dispossessed groups and all those that it, that it calls to be the oppressed as people who are not uh, able or capable of being responsible moral agents, but people who are only in need of someone else to save them. Every time that we start talking about systemic sins or whatever else, what is the proposed solution? Every single time, the proposed solution is just doing for those what they cannot do for themselves. Assuming, believing that the poor or the ethnic minority or whoever else it is, is someone who just needs a handout and someone who does not have the dignity of being able to make choices for themselves. I'm not saying that we don't help where there needs to be help, right? But I'm also saying that we cannot view people as just consumers rather than cultivators. God made man in his image. He placed him in the garden, and he said, work it and keep it, right? Cultivate it. Ideological social justice sees the world as divided between the power holders, the landowners, the wealth owners, or the influence holders, and just the consumers. Lastly, we do acknowledge the reality of systemic sins. Because we see, according to Scripture, that since all men are sinners before God, wherever there is men and women, wherever there are people and they are creating institutions and they are creating systems, sin will influence it. That is obvious from a biblical point of view, which is why we need continued reformation from, uh, you know, based upon a biblical worldview. So we do acknowledge that there is such a thing as systemic sins. And we do acknowledge that there is still oppression uh, in our world today. We do acknowledge that there's such a thing as oppression, even in America. But we cannot just assume that wherever there is inequality, that there must be oppression. We have to take a more complex view and look than that. So this is the difference between what the Christian worldview says about sin and judgment and what the humanistic worldview and ideological social justice says. What do they say is the answer? In other words, is there a hope for humanity? Can our world be transformed? My last point, you might be able to guess it based off the others. Only the Christian worldview can provide redemption for our world and transformation for our society. Here's why. Because if only Christianity can accurately diagnose the problem, which is rebellion, 
that we have all broken God's law, that we have all lived as autonomous beings unto ourselves, as though it is only our ideas and our actions and our choices that matter, and that we can live our lives as we desire in the face of God. We have all broken God's law. We have all we all have a debt before him. But what uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 14, he says, speaking of Jesus, he says, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. You see, because Christianity says that the greatest problem facing our world today is rebellion against God, it says that the only answer to solve the greatest problem of our world today is the work of God in Jesus Christ whenever he went to the cross, taking the place that I deserved, taking the place that you deserved, receiving on himself what what should have been ours, receiving the justice of God on human sin. Therefore, as God says, as Paul says in another place, Christ interposed his blood. The image is this. God sits in his seat of judgment with his law based upon his character, and there we are in, in, in the chair of, of justice, right? There we are in the, in the defendant's seat. There is a status of guilty over us, or as Paul says here, there is a certificate of debt. We have broken God's law, and now we owe him something. And there in the courtroom, Christ interposes. In between the judge and the guilty, he places his blood, in between us, he steps into the gap there, and he takes the, ste- the, the verdict of guilty upon himself so that we might be acquitted. He takes the punishment upon himself. The justice of God is satisfied. But the justice of God will either be satisfied with him bringing his justice down upon mankind. It will be satisfied either by you paying, or it will be satisfied because Christ has paid. This is what Paul means when he says that because he went to the cross and he took, this is, this image has just been one of my all-time favorites for, for years now. He says that Jesus went to the cross and he was holding my certificate of debt. He was holding the list of all of the laws of God that I have broken. He, he was holding the list of, of what I owed God that should have been paid with my blood. And he took that list and he says he nailed it to his own cross. And on his cross, his blood was shed instead of mine. His body was broken instead of mine. He suffered instead of me. And his blood paid for my debt. Paul says that this is the answer for the greatest problem of the world. It is not what we can do. It is not what any of our leaders can do. It is not what any of our celebrities can do. And it is not what any of our politicians can do. But it is only what Christ the Lord can do to wipe away our certificate of death, of debt in his own death. And then once he does that, what does he say? He says he fills us with his spirit. He talks about it in a few different times in this passage. And, you, and I encourage you, go read the full chapter of Colossians 2 later on today in this week. He talks in several places how Christ through his work has not only accomplished forgiveness for us, but then he has filled us with his spirit. So you see, we are not just relieved of that debt and then left unchanged, but we are relieved of that debt. We, and then uh, through the experience of the love of God and his grace being applied to us and being filled with his spirit, and his spirit is the fullness of God. So, so with God uh, rushing in, like tsunami waves into the crevices of your soul. He then transforms you from the inside out. 
And as I said before, we have problems in our world. We have injustices. We do have, there is, do not misunderstand anything I've said today. There are oppressors today, and there are oppressed. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is that the problem will not be changed through utopian visions of dismantling systems, but it will only be changed through transformation by the Holy Spirit. And if we expect to be the kind of people who can do anything effective and lasting in our culture, then we've got to start here with Christ who paid our debt and fills us with his spirit. And then as I've been saying week upon week in this, in this series, then if we can be personally transformed, then maybe our church community here could be changed. We would be a community of people that can, that can model and show to the world what it looks like whenever there, there is a collective that lives according to the sovereignty of God and what he reveals about himself in his word. And then if our church can change, then maybe all of our individual families, our, our little you know, units of God, our, our little cells of God's kingdom spread across the city can, can start to change. And then maybe our society can start to transform. But where we begin in pursuing that transformation will inevitably determine the results. So friends, we must begin in the freedom that is offered to us in Christ Jesus and his work. Paul said to them, do not be deceived. He says, if you have received Christ as Lord, continue in Christ as Lord. And he says, after the passage that we read here, he says, and do not be deceived by the theories and by the ideas and by the philosophies and imaginations, he says, of those with an unspiritual mind. What does that mean? It just means a mind that does not acknowledge God. So in the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, let us not live underneath the bondage that comes from either secular conservatism or ideological social justice. Let us work upon the, the compass, which is the only compass and guide that can point us towards true north, that can point us towards what is true justice, objective truth, right, based upon the God who is there and who is not silent. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask for your help to understand the difference between what are the ideas of man and what are the revealed truths from you. Lord, let us live lives as individuals, as families, as a church, which are based only upon the standard of your word. And Lord, whenever we look at the ideas in our, in our world when we look at the ideas in culture, when we look at the ideas of government, and when we look at the ideas in, uh, the, in, in commerce and whatever else, that we might be discerning and selective and viewing them through the filter of what your word says. Lord, so that we would only embrace that which is good and true and beautiful, but that we would know what is good and true and beautiful because it aligns with what you say. Father, give us those kind of eyes. And give us hearts which are humble and tender, so that we might make an appealing, uh, so we might make an appealing argument, so we might present a beautiful alternative to what the world offers, one which is based upon the work of Jesus Christ, and not based upon the work of man. Father, would you deal with that ultimate problem that exists in all of our hearts, which is rebellion against you? 
Bring us into submission to you through your loving kindness. Transformation by your rich grace and your unending love. That we will be transformed through the experience of being lavished with mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. And that we could see that same mercy and grace and love and kindness then spread out into our world so that it would relieve the oppressed. So that it would, uh, so that it would bring dignity to the dispossessed and, and, and dignity to those who have been told that they are nothing but helpless victims. Lord, it is through your name and through your word that we ask and pray all these things.